0: inaugural podcast for the MAM Club. We're an organization devoted to supporting men as they move through their midlife because it ain't easy. We're going to work through this together. You're you're not alone. Uh, my name is Matt and my co-host is Gareth. Hey there. Uh, we've been around the block. We've gone through city moves and job changes and highs and lows and kids and weight gain, hair loss, wrinkles, soft tissue injuries, bedroom troubles, procrastination and all the rest. So We have some uh, scars of our own. Uh, Still, we're not necessarily the smartest guys in the room, so as we go through this and and, uh, future episodes, we'll bring in
1: experts to help us. So, intros. Let's start with you, sir. Uh, Hi, everybody. My name's Gareth. Uh, Like Matt, I've been uh, been around the block a little bit as well. I'm 45 years old. I got three kids, actually three girls, ages 4, seven and soon to be nine. So I'm in the the middle of the midlife uh, maelstrom right now where we had our kids late. And so uh, I'm, a, I'm a pretty busy guy. Uh, background wise, I think the most interesting contribution is probably the fact that uh, uh, I spent a lot of time in grad school. I got my PhD in philosophy, but uh, have an undergrad in psychology. Uh, think of myself more as a cognitive scientist because most of the work I did is at the border of you know, philosophy, psychology, and cognitive science. That's, that's amazing. You're the, you're the right guy to
0: have here. My background is more business-oriented. Uh, by trade, I'm a management consultant. Please don't hold that against me. <laughs> I've held uh, roles working for uh, lots of different companies, big and small, in, in various industries. Uh, which has given me the opportunity to meet a lots of uh, very interesting people. Um, I'm an avid gamer. Uh, I too have uh, two kids, two boys in this case, you know, to balance out Gareth's three girls. Um, I uh, have done life coaching in the past and uh, and mentoring as well. And as of late, I have found. I think my great passion to be in the space of uh, psychology, and uh, that's what I've been doing for the past six years is reading and writing on that topic. So um, here we are. Thank you all very much for joining us today. Um, so let's, let's get started. We're really going to cover one core topic today as an introduction and really as the, sort of, as the thing we want to talk about, which is what is middle age and why is it so hard for many men? So let's start with that uh, the first part. So what is uh,
1: how would you define middle age? You know, it's a really interesting question. I, I, I mean, I'm sure there's standard definitions out there. And I think, uh, I, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what the standard definition of middle age is, but certainly not to be morbid about the topic... I guess it all depends on when you when you end up dying. Um, certainly, life expectancies are different today than they were uh, years ago, and so I imagine the definition of what midlife is is probably stretched out a little bit. And I think the numbers I've seen is that it's somewhere between forty and sixty-five on the high end. So sixty-five probably being an adjusted time frame for the fact that um, people are living much longer lives they did to, today than they than they have in the past. Yeah, I wonder. So, if you look at dictionary definitions, which is all I have to go on,
0: yeah, you get a, a range of what you, that you mentioned—forty or forty-five to sixty or sixty-five—and I think, uh, funnily enough, Merriam-Webster states it's only till sixty-four. I guess something magical happens at sixty-five. <laughs> Retirement, I guess. Yeah, something like that. Um, so that's so that's kind of the, the realm. Although I, I suppose you know anyone going through. Um, you know a crisis and we'll talk about what what a crisis is that i mean that could happen at any age
1: in theory yeah it's an interesting question i mean i imagine uh, like i remember going through my early 30s and uh, actually i remember turning 30 and uh, the number of people who had anxiety making uh, regarding making that transition between 29 and 30 was, you know, was remarkable. And so I, I imagine there's some, some, some early starters when it comes to midlife crises, whenever they cross one of those big age milestones, like age 30 or age 40, you know, people are forced to think about, you know, where they're at in their lives and where they want to go. Yeah. So that's a, a great segue. Um, so
0: how can you tell, how can you tell if you're, uh, if you're in one of these
1: low points? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, it's really hard to tease out, uh, a midlife crisis from any other crisis in one's life um, uh, is my guess. Um, you know, uh, and so I, I, I like, let me just frame this as a question and something that we can explore. Uh, I mean, what is the difference between a midlife crisis and a life crisis? Um, is there something that's you know, unique about a crisis that's organized around midlife uh, that makes a difference in some fundamental way from, from any other crisis. I mean, imagine, for example, you know, you're at a different age let's say you're in your early 30s but you happen to have aging parents and you happen to have had a a child young so you're dealing with some of the many of the same stressors as 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 happens with people uh, at other points in their lives you know would you call that a midlife crisis if somebody doesn't meet the age requirement Um, so how do you tease that apart I guess is a is an interesting question well there's so there's i mean, there's two parts to that one is symptoms like do you
0: you know there's things that you do, and then there's the second part that you talked about, which is uh what part of your life you're you're in so the the symptom list is interesting so i've i pulled up some of these because you know for myself being forty five I was curious because i you know felt like i i think i I may be on uh on the tip of one or in the midst of one or or well through not sure so things like um the analogy I use is sort of like you're driving, right? You've been driving along your whole life and you had an idea of where you were going. So you're just plowing ahead you know, a pedal to the metal. And at some point you stop and you start looking around and you say, well, where, where am I? And how, how did I get here? And it's, so it's these reflection on life, uh, thinking about the what ifs. Um, and then of course that takes you down a different d- paths, like did I miss out on stuff? Uh, maybe I can make up for things that uh, that I let slip in my youth. Um, I'll go back to some nostalgia maybe, you know, maybe that'll make me feel better. Um, you know, a, a lot of guys in this age, you know, start hitting the gym again. They start worrying about self-image. Um, so you'll, you'll, see, you'll see a lot of this, right? The uh, Whether it's just a new wardrobe, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, gaining a few pounds of muscle or, uh, or getting some facial injections, what, whatever that is, you know, that seems to happen around this time where you just reflect back on it. Um, so in theory, those could happen at any point in time, I guess, but you know, I've, I've sort of, um, related to, to a lot of those, the ones where you may feel lost a little bit or you you find yourself, you know, seeking meaning
1: again. Yeah. What's, what's interesting about that is that, yeah some of the similar some of those symptoms you see in uh in descriptions of uh of people who are going through another kind of crisis in one's life a divorce um so very often when people are uh unsatisfied in their personal relationships uh and those relationships are starting to fall apart you know they they start to reflect on you know the decisions that they've made up until that point um why they're in the situation that they're in but also start to think about ways in which they can improve themselves and move beyond that so so uh it's not uncommon uh in 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 the midst of a divorce to have one or both partners all of a sudden start to worry about their self-image again uh uh that's likely in part due to you know the possibility that one may be looking for you know looking beyond their current relationship and thinking about you know preparing themselves for a next relationship, yeah um you know people i think I think we're gonna I think we're gonna need a whole episode on that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that that seems like a big one to unpack. Yeah, and I, and I guess the the point is 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 simply that you know in, in terms of midlife, I think we need something just a little bit more to 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 distinguish a midlife crisis from another crisis. And so let me let me take a stab at it and and, and see and see if we can kind of get somewhere with that. Um, you know, there's something that uh, you know, age seems to be. I mean, it's part of the definition. So it's clearly a, a you know, part of the concept of of a midlife crisis is has something to do with you know a crisis that's happening that's due to age in some way, uh, and in particular due to something that's unique about being in your midlife that's different than, from being you know at a crisis at other points in your life. And I think you you alluded to a bunch of really important features of what that looks like. You know, as we you know as we hit our forties and our fifties, you know, when you're looking out on retirement, you've spent you know. 10 to 20 years in the workforce. Uh, you have uh, family, kids of various ages and, you know, and if your kids are moving off to school or even if you've had kids late and your kids are, your kids are younger. Um, you, you, know, there's this moment of reflection when you realize, okay, you know, I've just hit a new milestone. I've turned 45 or I've turned 50 or I've turned 55, whatever that happens to be for the person. And, uh, I think there's this glaring awareness of the fact that you're not going to live forever. um, and uh, I think it's it, you know it's there's a sense in which it's like a classic existential crisis. I mean, you know, without droning on about this, I mean, back in, in you know uh, in the last century, you know, the ex, the famous existentialists, you know, philosophers like, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, and uh, Martin Heidegger uh, and other quote-unquote existentialists, Albert Camus, uh, they focus on this question about, you know, what the meaning of life is and what the meaning of human existence is. And, you know, one of the resounding themes in that work was, you know, that death has this amazing way of focusing us on what the meaning of life is. And so I expect that, when people enter into a midlife crisis, part of it is this knowledge that you're not going to live forever uh, and trying to figure out what you're going to do with the time that you have left. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's, uh, that's very true. And this is, and that brings up another thing, which is like, this isn't new, right? You're talking about philosophers from, you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, this is something, this is like the uh, unbearable lightness of being, right? Like none of this is uh, this is
1: brand new to us Every every person goes through something like this. Yeah. And if there's, I mean, if there's one thing that's comforting about all of it is that, you know, this is not a unique experience. I mean, this is something that, that, that all of us face. And in fact, you know, there's, there's a positive spin on a midlife crisis is that it's an opportunity to, to, you know, once again, to take a step back and explore the meaning of your own life and to think about, you know, how you, the various ways in which you can bring meaning in, into your life, um, Uh, Which I think is kind of interesting because it it sets up a really interesting, you know, contrast against I think people's stereotypical ideas about what a midlife crisis looks like. You know, uh, you know, a a balding man in his in in his late fifties buying a, a a convertible Porsche or corvette um and dating younger women and you know and all the other things that go along with it uh you know the reason why i point that out is is, you know there's an interesting question about whether or not that you know is 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 that solution maybe it works for some people but you know is that solution really ultimately going to bear fruit when it comes to to bringing more meaning into your life that's really what's at the core of this yeah yeah i want to i want to come back to that but there's there's one other thing
0: which is you know this thought of, is this, is this, has this changed at all? Um, there is one, uh, um, a number of pieces of research, both from the UK as well as some from North America that have shown that, uh, men sort of in the age of 40 to 54 have suicide rates that are three to four times as high as women. Now, um, that's, that's an interesting stat in itself, but what's, what's more interesting is that those numbers have been increasing over the past decade. So, is there something different today than than there was 50, 100, or, or 1,000 years ago?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I saw uh, the National Statistics, the Office for the National Statistics in the United Kingdom has been reporting recently that um, 40, 40 to 59 year olds, which is the age range they define, are the most anxious, anxious age group. Um, and certainly their conception of what's driving this is that it's, you know, it's, brought on by a sudden awareness of mortality and so as we all fly through our 20s and 30s we think we're going to live forever we've got all these ambitions and plans uh, uh, that we want to uh, seek out um, but as you get older you know those opportunities start to collapse we have responsibilities you have a mortgage you have children and so you know the 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 sense that the spa the future is wide open you know starts to close in um, uh, and, I, and I imagine that brings also a, a, an impending sense of pressure i mean if you have any kind of perfectionist tendencies at all you can probably relate to the idea that that uh under time constraints like this um the the fear of failure and the fear of getting it wrong uh when it comes to you know living your life i mean nothing could be you know more anxiety provoking than that uh, yeah. and, and, uh, and in the face of death, I mean, the, the idea that you might not have been able to left, have left your mark on the world, if that's what you're worried about or, uh, created enough meaning or personal fulfillment in your life. I mean, uh, I imagine that's a pretty significant. That can, that can take a toll. And then, and then, you know, I would lump a few other things on
0: top of that, which is, which is, you know, there is that. And then there's also the the other side, which you mentioned your mortgage and kids. Those are, those are not only things, you know, where, where as responsible men, you know, we take those things seriously. But, um, but if you think about it, when, when we're younger in our twenties or thirties, we get sort of reinforcement from various places, right? We meet a, Mm -hmm. meet a pretty girl, or boy, and they tell us, you know, that we're, we're, uh, we're attractive and smart. And, and um, then we go to work and we're, you know, we're at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, But that also means we have, you know, managers that mentor us, help us grow in the career and so on. And then as you get older, um, all those things change, right? So, you know, by, by middle age, um, you know, you're, you know, in your career, you're established. So you're, you're probably the one mentoring others. I mean, at home, uh, your, your partner is likely, uh, got, uh, their own stuff to deal with. Right. So it's it's a little bit like ships passing in the night. Sometimes, uh, if you have kids, I mean, those things, you know, sure. They, I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of enjoyment fulfillment from that, but they do suck a lot of energy out of you. Um, so it seems to be, you know, like all of these things weighing on, uh, weighing on your shoulders that seem to
1: come around this age. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's what the—I uh, mean—that's what the common explanation is for the uh, for the anxiety statistics, at least as far as as far as I can tell, is it's just the sheer weight of responsibility, um, and the uh, and the feeling like there's a a, a lack of options, um, and having that weighing on you at the same point in time as coming to terms with your own mortality uh ends up for some people ends up being too much which is you know why we tend to think of it i mean not we but some people tend to think of it as a as as a crisis because you know i think part of what makes it a crisis for somebody is that many people are totally unprepared for for dealing with it um you know when you when you see this stuff on uh, on various social media forums uh you see people talking about it um you know there's for many men uh it comes as a surprise um, the, that they're that they're in a crisis, which is which is uh, it, you know t- very telling in the sense that you know what better demonstration of not being prepared for something uh, than being surprised by it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and that lack of preparation, I think, and, and lack of preparation and, and a lack of you know uh, I guess openness socially to talking about these things, uh, I think, has many men ill equipped for. Dealing with you know what might otherwise be just a natural part of transitioning in life, going through another phase. I mean, uh, a good friend of mine, when we uh, when we, when he had his his children and and I, I, my children were young, you you know. He was fond of pointing out that everything was just a phase. Um, you know, first you're going through when when you when the when the babies were young, you're going through you know the the nursing phase and the lack of sleep phase, and then all of a sudden they're eating solid food and and they're starting to move around, and that becomes a different phase. And then uh, as they start walking and learning to speak, it's a different phase. And uh, and every piece of it was different uh, from the standpoint of. of the experience of the parents. I mean, and each one of them had its own unique set of stressors uh, and its own unique set of opportunities. I mean, you're watching your child flourish, but at the same point in time, there's, there's new things to worry about. So as the child starts to move around, you have to worry about stairs. You have to worry about them getting into cabinets and, and all sorts of things. And so all of a sudden you're locking everything down. Um, but uh, by the same token, you get to see the kids having fun and learning and exploring the world. Um, and when it comes to you know midlife, I mean, it's an interesting question whether or not this is just another phase of life and, and this is a normal part of life and, and not something that, uh, that we need to worry about. Uh, but something that, you know, if you learned a little bit more about and were a little bit more prepared for may seem a little bit less onerous. Yeah. I, I guess that the, that, that sh-
0: maybe that's the way it should be, right? Maybe that's the way it, we should look at all of these is it's just another phase and we should expect it to, uh, to come. Um, I just I you know personal experience and experience of friends I just don't I don't think wh- whether we're prepared or not I don't think that's the way it's experienced um mm-hmm. the uh this this study I found recently it's from the National Bureau of Economic Research and and they took a look you know they did a graph of how happy people are um and they stated that the the uh, worst or the 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 age at which men are the most um miserable as 47 years of age. And so that seems, first of all, that seems really specific. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, so I guess we're not prepared. Is that what's going on?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the, is, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, when I, when I think about the idea of, of a midlife crisis, so, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind is words matter. Um, and certainly the word crisis is going to get people's attention um, and you know in in modern society we've we've we have a habit of medicalizing just normal parts of life um you know even when you see the statistics from the national statistics office you know talks about 40 to 59 year olds are the most anxious group uh and that word anxious you know has a clinical definition you know that's 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 explained in the diagnostic and statistical manual of psychiatry and and just by using that word you know my guess is that many people you know like me see that and start to think you know is, is this a is this a medical condition you know you know how do we deal with somebody who, who's going through a midlife thing does this require Medication does it require therapy, and uh, it made me think about uh, uh, a course I'd uh, I'd sat in on uh, during grad school that was on uh, that was on psychiatric illness. And the the we read this book by this psychologist Thomas Saz uh, called "The Myth of Mental uh, The Myth of Mental Illness." He wrote the book in 1961, and it was it was really interesting. I mean, I, you know, not to endorse everything in the book. I think one of the things that he that he really pushed forward, what I think is an interesting idea, is that many psychiatric problems for him uh, were just what he called problems of living. Um, that these were a normal part of life that uh, that all of us experience and that the way to address them is to address them in the way that they had always been addressed uh, you know by reaching out into your social network so you know he imagined that you know before we had clinical psychologists and psychoanalysts you know when when somebody was going through an experience they would talk to their family or friends or they talked to the you know the the, the priest or uh, you know the the wise person in the village and people who had more experience were able to you know bring down to earth uh, and provide practical to s- solutions to to the person who was going through one of these problems of living and you know i point that out just uh just so that we at least have on the table the idea that you know a midlife experience you know, doesn't need to be a crisis and it may not be a positive experience uh um but if we if we're careful about how we think about mo- th- this experience uh it it'll lend us to, lend us uh, to or lead us to different solutions, right? So, you know, obviously the first being, you know, maybe you don't need to seek medical treatment if you're if you're going through a problem of living regarding uh you know, your experiences in midlife, and maybe instead, you know, you should be exploring other options around around how to address that. Uh, yeah, I, that makes sense, right? Not to medicalize it, although you know.
0: It'd be nice if there was like a prescription for a Porsche.
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, I'd, I'd like the midlife one of those. crisis pill. Yeah,
1: I think uh, I think they call it Viagra.
0: Yeah, there is that. There is that too. So, I mean, I would assume that there there are even though the, these may be, as you call them problems of living. I mean, I'm assuming there are cases in which you know there is real depression that comes from it, clinical depression that that arises out of uh, whatever the the crisis may be.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's an interesting point as well. Um, But, you know, there's, there are, uh, you know, if you think about the experience of having a loved one die, uh, and the emotions that a person's overwhelmed with after, uh, after they lose somebody, you know, Uh, and they go into deep sorrow, and they may have a protracted protracted period of grief, but do we call that grief, or do we call it depression? I mean, and and in some cases, uh, you know, people do get prescribed antidepressants, um, because they're having serious difficulties coping with the the death of a loved one, and I certainly don't want to adjudicate, you know, what, uh, I'm not, not being a medical doctor, of course, you know, what makes sense in terms of treatment options for people, for people who are going through these experiences. I just think it's an important counterpoint to, um, to the dialogue to make sure that when, when, you know, for our listeners out there who are, who who may be in this situation, you know, this is for many people, a normal experience. Um, And when you see it as a being a normal experience, you know, and don't medicalize it, uh, it may lead you to seeking out different options for how you deal with it. Uh, That being said, I mean, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to discourage somebody who may be dealing with multiple crises uh, that happen to be at the same point in their lives, who may need, you know, medical attention, may need clinical support um, to not ignore that and and reduce, you know, their current experience to just a midlife crisis when they they may have other things going on as well, which makes it even more complicated. It it does. But I think, I think that,
0: you know, your, your point is, you know, it's not a default, right? It's not, uh, it's not that you, you must go and and have medical intervention. There's, uh, there's other options. Whenever I think of medical intervention, my, my dad's a neurophysiologist. So, um, you know, a lot of pontification happening at the dinner table in my youth, but, uh, he, um, uh, he, he instilled in me this sort of thought that uh, having spent his career studying the brain, we don't, we don't really understand it all that well. It's like this beautiful, s- balanced soup. And when you start medical intervention, not of all kinds, but of certain kinds, it, it can take that soup and bring it out of equilibrium. And then it's very difficult to bring it back and and um and so so it should be taken with caution, although uh on the other hand if your soup's already out of balance, then you need something to help you bring it back into balance so there's both sides, so I think your point about being prudent on it is probably the uh the right thing to think about all right yeah, so I
1: mean, go ahead yeah
0: so we have um well, i have I have so many questions so i don't. Uh, let uh, me run through them. Um, so does does everyone have one of these? Like, is this is this a guarantee uh, that you're going to experience this, or uh, you know, just do do some people just kind of skip it and and say, yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't even notice.
1: Well, it'd be interesting to see what the statistics are. I mean, maybe that's something that we can take a look at and come back to. Um, I, I mean, imagine with all things, there's a you know, there's a distribution, and you know. There's a question about what the you know who lives one standard deviation from the mean in terms of uh, midlife crisis and, and, and what happens at the other ends of the extreme, and uh, and so no doubt there'll be people who go through life who never have a who never have a midlife crisis and there and then there are people at the other end of the spectrum who certainly um, are are really challenged at this at this point in their life as well, and and then a question about what happens to everybody else, um, but certainly you know. I, I think there's a general set of questions that I think are just, that, that come from understanding what midlife is like, that I think are fruitful for consideration for the average person in terms of thinking about how they want to bring meaning in their lives. You know, it's interesting when you look at some, um, you know, the psychology of motivation, uh, uh, there's some brilliant work done by, uh, by Desi and Ryan. They, they developed, a. Uh, what was called self-determination theory. Um, that's a, essentially a, a foundational theory of the psychology of motivation. And it's been used in all sorts of areas from, from K to 12 education uh, and curriculum design to, uh, to dealing with addictions uh, through a technique called motivational interviewing uh, used in high, high performance coaching as well. Um, and, you know, and essentially self-determination theory states that there's kind of three key factors um that drive motivation and, and i you know I'll, li- I'll list them but i'm only going to point at one of them and so they're they're autonomy uh competence or mastery and or mastery and relatedness um and relatedness this first one third one you know is typically conceptualized as uh as having a sense of social belonging a sense of connection with with others uh, but it's also uh sometimes unpacked as as also having a sense of uh of a relationship with meaning and purpose in your life as well. And, uh, and so, you know, it's not surprising that, that all of us, you know, want to know that the, that, that, you know, whatever time and effort we're putting into whatever it is that we're doing that that at least has some purpose. You know, I don't think, uh, I think most of us aren't purely transactional at the end of the day. You know, you go into work and you collect a paycheck and uh, and that's typically not enough for somebody to be satisfied in their job. I mean, they'd like to understand how their work fits into the larger purpose and they'd like to contribute. And we're seeing that even more and more with millennials. But I think, but I think for people in their midlife, you know, if they haven't invested this question, investigated this question about what brings meaning into their lives, you know, the the these kinds of situations, whether it's a, brought on by a crisis or or just a a newfound time to reflect on this, it's beneficial to be thinking about you know what brings meaning into your life. Probably sooner rather than later, so that you're not surprised. Yeah, I said there's a there's a great line I
0: saw from uh, Amy Douglas um, of uh, Spark Coaching. And, um, I really like this. She says um, when you when you have a need that intersects a strength, but it lacks passion, it's called a chore, right? Something, yeah. something that you're good at, but you're not excited about. It's just called a chore. But if you're good at something and you're passionate about it, right? Then, then that's when you find quote unquote meaning. Um, it's, it's an interesting distinct distinction, um, to find not only the things that you're good at, but the things where you have some interest.
1: Yeah, that's um, interesting. I mean, and what I mean, let's just explore that for a quick second here. You know, so so what is passion? You know, w- w- what is that that missing ingredient um, to get? Whether it's beyond whether your it's your work that's a chore, or your family responsibilities that are a chore, or you know, other parts of your life are a chore. You know, what is passion, and how can you bring that into your life?
0: Yeah, I don't think that's. Uh, I mean, that's a that's probably a one of the harder things to, um, to identify. Um, uh, but definitely like that's, that's the sort of exercise mm-hmm. I'm making notes here. Cause I'm thinking, you know, that's a, that's a good, uh, that's a whole episode. I think we should do just around exercises to identify passions. Cause it's, I mean, for some it's straightforward, but for others it's, um, it's a little deeper, like, like, you know, for me and others that I've talked to, a lot of that passion comes from making or building, not necessarily in a physical sense, although physical makes sense. I love, you know, Mm Renaults, but, uh, but, uh, but, but also in, in other, uh, in other mediums. So, um, so that's, that's kind of a broad thing, right? I want to make stuff that's, that's broad. So we, you kind of need to unpack that and, and drill into it. Um, so you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna make a note on that. Maybe we can come back and and spend more time on it.
1: Um, you know, there's an interesting thought experiment uh, when when you think about. So let's say you're 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 45 like us. You're looking at you're looking back on your life, and you're looking out on your life, and uh, you know you're seized by this problem of, oh, my gosh, am I, I mean, I'm, am I living a good life? I mean, am I am I you know, what does that really mean? And, and, uh, and what should I really be focusing on? And, and, you know, there's an interesting thought experiment, uh, which is, and, and in fact, people researchers. I don't have the, uh, I don't have the studies off the top of my mind, but, um, you know, the, the people have collected qualitative information around people, men specifically who, you know, who are on the verge of dying, uh, who, have a much different perspective on how they, the things that they might've done differently if they were to live their lives all over again. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: I've seen, I've seen these things. There's actually a, there's actually a book um, I'll put it in the references here uh, called triumphs of experience that I've been reading about. Anyway, I'll, I'll come back to that. So I'll, I'll let you finish a thought.
1: No yeah i mean i, I think that's the uh, i mean that's so that's the thought experiment so so let's say you know we actually have the data and we can we can look that up and 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 surface that um, but right now i mean every one of us can sit back and say okay you know if i project out to whatever hopefully distant point in my life the where where i'm in that situation and i'm looking back on my life you know what are the things that i'm going to be proud of you know, is it going to be driving around in a Corvette or dating younger women or, you know, some of those other stereotypical uh, ideas of, of what a midlife crisis looks like? And I think, you know, just as an aside, I think it's one of the things we should explore is how people deal with midlife crisis and what what the various pathways are that people take through that. Because I don't know if the stereotype's fair. We see it in popular media uh, and in Hollywood, but I don't know that, you know, I don't know that that's a common uh, a common approach to it. Um but if you if you sit back and take a look at you know your life as a whole, you know what are the things that you'd want to, that you think you'd be proud of, and and certainly the things that stand out to me, and I think this is consistent with the the the, the qualitative research, uh, is you know certainly your, your earthly possessions are probably not going to be high on the list um, you know as you're looking back on your life you're not going to be thinking about the various versions of uh, of iPhones and and iwatches that you've uh, that you managed to purchase or or be proud of the fact that you were lucky enough to be able to upgrade your phone um Through every every single version of iPhone or or something along those lines, Uh, what's likely going to stand? Are you
0: shopping for a phone? Is that what's going on?
1: Don't tell anybody. A phone focus here. (laughs) Uh, I'm just killing the metaphor, drowning it to death. (laughs) Um, But it's likely going to be things like relationships. Uh, You know, relationships with your family, relationships with your friends. If you have children, uh, you know, you know the the time that you spent with those people um, uh, in your life. And so, uh, so I, I think we should come back to that at some point in time and take a look at the actual the actual list because I think that would be super helpful. Um, well, I have I have three the three that
0: I remember from from the book. Um, let me take a short aside and tell you about this book because I think it's it's relevant and it's really good. So it's uh, it's a summary of studies uh, that were done with one of the longest psychological longitudinal studies done. So this was done with. Um, Uh, I think it was 300 men from Harvard and they were tracked their entire lives. So from 19 in the, in the thirties, I believe till, till the early two thousands, um, with annual tests, um, whatever the latest psychological tests were, um, as well as physical tests and so on, and and all of this data is is available now for analysis. So this this book Triumphs of experience begins to take anecdotes from that. So you get a lot of a lot of this how did how did men go through life? Now now it was men, by the way, because they wanted to keep things consistent. They wanted to control for gender, and it was also all Harvard men because they also wanted to control for socioeconomic, um, just in case someone. Get sent, you know, upset about uh, uh, about how studies were done back then. But that was a that was there. That was the way that they controlled variability. So, um, the three that I remember, um, people on their deathbed and said, "What what do you wish you did differently?" They answered three things. They said, um, "I wish I worked less. Um, I wish I spent more time with family and friends, and I wish I worried less. I wish I was happier more often." That sort of theme. Those were the the top three. Um That were mentioned, so I mean, you certainly hit on the uh um the family and friends one. Um, I actually want to talk about this work thing a little bit because I think it's uh you know it 's a good piece of, of of what we do uh it takes up a good chunk of our lives' not if not the majority of our lives um so i want to I want to talk about that if uh, but i don 't want to take away from other points you had if you were saving one.
1: No, I, I think the no, the only point was 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 simply that in terms of thinking about um, seizing on the opportunity that a you know a, a midlife experience like this provides, uh, you know, it's it's a way of being able to focus your attention on 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 what brings meaning, and uh, you know, there's a lot of different paths that people can take through this. I mean, there's the classic hedonistic path, which is to fill yourself up with you know physical experiences, which is, you know, that speaks to, I think, the more stereotypical vision of what's going on. So I imagine uh, there's a whole range of, of responses that people have, including, you know, uh, relationship-wise, so dating younger people, I guess is the stereotype, certainly uh, material possessions, so doubling down on, on the things that you think will give you pleasure through your physical possessions, uh, you know, you know, substance abuse, I think, uh, probably comes along with that. And that's probably another interesting topic to explore in the future is, you know, the extent of, uh, the extent of substance abuse that's directly attributable to, you know, just coping with this part of one's life uh, as a form of self-medication. Um, uh, but there's other paths through a midlife experience as well that, that, that aren't hedonistic and instead could be uh, you know, an opportunity for, for taking a, a different approach. Yes.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. There's a there's an interesting passage I read about dating younger, um, uh, and uh, the hypothesis was that there's more to it than just you know like why why younger why not the same age or why not older? What is it about younger women for men? And so there's a um, there's an interesting study that looked at this from an anthropological standpoint mm. and said so how does how does can we explain it that way? And there is an explanation. Um, now you know, you can debate whether it's applicable or not, but there was an explanation and it went something like this, that, um, generally speaking, um, you know, women can only have so many offspring and it, it only occupies a particular period of their life. Men obviously have the ability to sire more offspring. Um, you know, we can, we can make babies at any age. So, um, from an anthropological standpoint, finding a younger woman increased the probability that she would be fertile and still within an age where she could bear children. Um, so that was the one explanation I heard as to why we may be attracted to youth from, from sort of, you know, a limbic system, kind of, you know, the old brain. Um, but, you know, it, just to be clear, like, this isn't, uh, you know, this is a hypothesis. I don't think this has been proven to be the answer but it was an interesting concept that there's something inside us that you know that makes us go that way
1: yeah no, i i there's a lot of interesting stuff in, in when you when you take a purely biological perspective on people and and what makes them tick uh you're certainly going to be led to a, a a certain set of deductions around that from that perspective so you know we are at least in my view, we are biological organisms. I don't think there's any debate about that. That's the foundation of modern medicine, um, and certainly uh, some of our drives uh, are dictated by you know biological necessity. I mean, reproduction is you know one of the ultimate biological acts, and so the to the extent to, to the extent to which we you know we can attribute some of our behavior to you know the the need desire however you want to conceptualize that to pass on our genes is certainly you know there's certainly some, some interesting things to be said there um i mean in general you know when it, when it comes to evolutionary psychological reasoning i mean there's a whole discipline in in in, in the social sciences that emerged back in the 1990s called you know start with evolutionary psychology um uh you know, I remember uh, in, in again back in grad school reading reading one of the uh uh one of the introductory texts on this, uh and I have, the title escapes me right now, but certainly the the, the co authors were an anthropologist, not surprisingly a psychologist and uh, and I think it was a sociologist, but uh It sounds like uh, the beginning of a great joke. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. An anthropologist, psychologist, and a sociologist walk into a room. Uh um and uh and and certainly uh, the one of the things that I guess the, if there's one thing I would say about it is, um, well, I think, uh, there's certainly, there's something seductive about, about, about biological reasoning on that front. I mean, you know, biology isn't destiny by any stretch of the imagination either. And certainly, although, although there may be basic mechanisms around attraction, um, that facilitate reproduction, just like they do, you know, just like birds have mating dances, you know, maybe people have mating dances and those, those functions don't, don't die off at some point in our life, you know, they are also overwritten to some extent by, uh, by our experiences, by socialization in a culture and whatnot. And that's why we have, I think certain, certain taboos about dating younger. I mean, there's a reason why people, you know, some people experience disgust when they think that the age gap is too big. And there's some interesting uh, discussions around, you know, whether or not that's a, those, those are legitimate judgments, whether people, you know, people of different ages, you know, all over the place, regardless of gender, uh, can have fulfilling and fruitful relationships, um, but uh, uh, so but, you mean the uh, divide by
0: two plus seven rule is not scientific? Is that <laughs> yeah, yeah
1: it's something, something like that. Um, but uh, but but thinking to the motivation side of it, I mean, you know, certainly everybody, if everybody has the same biology, um, you know, there, there's an interesting question about why. N- not every manifestation of a midlife crisis results in you know in dating younger. Um, so I guess on the one hand you could kind of accept that you know the the roots of attraction don't disappear. So when you're when you're a man or a woman in your 70s or 80s, you know if you see a, a person who's much younger in age, um, whether or not those signals around attraction. You know, still get processed in your brain. They probably do, but there's a whole bunch of other mechanisms that 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 would prevent you from acting on those, if you if you if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so I think it's only a subset of people who who's 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 way of coping with the midlife crisis is to date is is to date younger, as it were.
0: I I think that's I think that's dead on. I mean, my theories on this are actually around personality. I think your your personality and your disposition. Not only can you know manages your life to some extent, um, but it also impacts these types of um, these types of decisions and what you end up doing. I, I, I want to come back to that. Maybe not. I don't even know if maybe this or probably another another whole session to talk about personality because that's a that's a big topic. But it's part of that self discovery. Um, that's uh, that's going to be important. Um, so we talked about you talked about dating, uh, substance abuse, maybe some physical, what about, there's, there's a couple others that I had, you know, stumbled upon in my own diagnoses, if you will, which was, uh, self care, like an in- increase in self care where you, um, uh, for whatever reason, you know, those, those wrinkles now are unacceptable or that hairline, um, it's gotta go or, or, you know, the, uh, I used to be, a. Thirty-four waste, and uh, I need to get back to that. Um, whatever those things are, what what do you think that is? Is that just vanity? Uh, it's,
1: uh, yeah, I think it's an interesting question as well. Um, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is you know if we if if we just kind of build on our our you know our uh, provisional definition of a midlife crisis, and we accept that it has something to do with coming to terms with your own mortality um you know the obvious signs of your mortality would be something that you would struggle with as well right you know if if all of a sudden you realize that you know your days are numbered uh then anything that's a reminder of that is going to be something that you're going to fight and so i think you know you you know some of those things become a an, an obsessive some of those are superficial obsessions so wrinkles on skin um uh, which may be part of a, a you know a greater preoccupation with your 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 appearance in general, but certainly one thread there through that would be looking younger looking more virile um you know uh feeling uh feeling more capable i mean there's i, I think there's probably different manifestations in that uh and yeah, some of it might feeling, be just feeling attractive right
0: like back to that you know i you still want to be an attractive man um yeah at the end at the end of the day
1: you know it's what's interesting is that i and I'm not an an expert on social norms, but certainly you can look older and still be attractive. I mean, and and there seems to be at least um, certainly different stereotypes or different social norms around that. I mean, women are seem to be held to different standards than men in that regard. Um, So, uh, so I don't know. I mean, so, so I certainly think that uh, it's, it's, it's got something to do with attractiveness. Um, uh, and again, I like there's, no, there's no one-size-fits-all no one here for for every person either. So, yeah, and I like what you said about
0: reminding, right? Reminders of uh, of of your age, if you will. Um, I think that makes sense. If we're reminded of our own mortality, we don't want to see those reminders every day. Um, my my favorite uh, uh, story from this was, you know, the guy who gets the tattoo on the inside of his leg. Mm-hmm. Which measures how low his ball sack is hanging and that defines his age. Can we say that? Do we have to, are we gonna have to cut that out? I don't anyway. I've considered that one.
1: Now um, every time I look at the door jam in which I'm measuring my kids' heights, I'm not gonna be able to look at it the same way. That's <laughs> I don't well that's
0: something I never thought about the door jam. That's that'd be something. Explain that to your kids. Um so the the last one on this uh on the list was uh that, I, that I, you know, in my own research was bad decisions, right? So it's this idea that, and, and I think you, you mentioned this earlier, which is, you know, you're running out of time. And so you got, you know, we got to do something, we got to do something, we got to do something. So the, the decisions end up being grandiose um, and even perhaps impulsive. Um, the, the car, for example, is a great example of this, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you were all prudent all of a sudden, and now there's a $100,000 car in your driveway or. Um, you know, now you're selling your house cause you, you decide you want to buy a condo downtown or whatever that, whatever that thing is. Um, is that just the, is that just the same, same thing as, as, um, uh, well, I don't know. Is it the same thing as, as one of the other ones or is that, it's, is that an a symptom up, uh, onto itself?
1: Ah, <sighs> yeah, I, you know, I mean, bad decisions can be made at any point in life. I guess as I think about it, I mean, are, 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 is the, is, are, are the decisions different? Is the nature of the decision different? Uh, or is the way in which decisions are approached different, different at midlife? Um, know. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, there's, there's probably plenty of people uh, and, I, you know, we all know stories about people who get their first jobs and uh, and they buy a vehicle that they can't afford and end up having to give it up. I mean, I, I there's plenty of people I knew in their 20s and 30s who misunderstood that uh, how much they were actually making and thought they'd, thought they'd won the lottery and all of a sudden made a bunch of poor financial decisions at that point in their lives it's probably a little bit different if you're making those decisions later in life. Cause I think we all like to assume that at least we have a certain amount of experience and that hopefully that experience has taught us something useful enough, uh, that we're less likely to make bad decisions. But, but, you know, if, I mean, it's, it makes sense to me that, uh, you know, because it's such an emotional time for somebody who's struggling with, you know, being in midlife, that I imagine there's probably a greater risk of of more impulsive decision making, uh, to the extent that you know they're being driven by their emotions and not being driven by by rationality. But I think you know for anybody who's in that situation, I'm a I'm a you know huge fan of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and you know two words come to mind: don't panic. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, you know, not buying that car at this particular moment or not making that decision, that impulsive decision right now isn't going to, isn't going to harm you as much as making a really bad decision will. Um, unlike other parts of your life, I think, you know, taking a bit of time and letting these things wash over, wash over a little bit is probably not, is probably a prudent thing to do.
0: So I want to go back to one thing that we talked about uh, which was career, um, the thing that takes up a good chunk of our lives, and how do we think about this mm-hmm. in in our in our youth, if you will, and of course we 're still young, um, this is the thing this is for for many men, this is the target. Um, we begin to define ourselves by our career and by whatever uh, we 've defined to be success in that career, be mm-hmm. that income, status, level freedom, whatever that may be. Um, but as, as, uh, we talked about, you know, on your deathbed, no one says, you know, boy, was I really happy that I got to that SVP level, um, at the company. No, no one seems to say that. So what, what's the deal with career? How should we be thinking about career? Oh.
1: you know, it's, 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 I I think that's a really personal thing, Um, you know, and unpacking that, you know, the, the, some of the questions that you'd want to be able to answer is, you know, why does status matter? Um, it does. I mean, the, the reality is, is that it does matter to people and, 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 social status seems to matter for, for all kinds of reasons. And, and people can get social status in different ways. You know, some people, you know, will do it through a life of public service, becoming a politician. Uh, some people do it by climbing the corporate ladder and getting the highest title possible. Uh, and, and other people, uh, you know, other people do it in terms of, you know, other forms of social status, you know, volunteering in their community and whatnot. Um, and uh, there's probably a, a, an even more complicated set of motivations that drive people to, to to seek out status. I mean, there's some people who end up having status who aren't seeking it out, um, uh, and, but then there's other people who just deliberately seek out status for its own sake. Uh, so, so I don't think it's an easy thing. It's an easy thing to unpack. But you know, when I get into a complicated topic like that, I mean. The, the first question I ask is, you know, what is status and why does it matter? Um, yeah. And I think
0: status is once, so if I think back to, and I, I uh, the name escapes me, needs theory, who would, Maslow? Who, no, it wasn't yeah. Maslow. Um, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll come back and put it in the notes. Um, Define needs in one of three areas that your needs were either based on, they were achievement based. Mm-hmm. They were affiliation based Um, or they were power-based and these are interesting. So affiliation or or start with the first one, achievement meant that you have achieved something and that there was an interesting definition of that, which is you were doing something that wasn't too easy and it wasn't too hard. So you felt like you were exerting the right amount of effort and making progress. You feel like you're doing something Mm -hmm. right. Um, so that was one. The other one was affiliation, which is, you know, I don't care where I work so long as I get to work with good people. Uh, however you define that. And then the third one was power which, which sounded negative, but as I read up on it, it wasn't actually negative. It was because you may want to exert power for good. For example, perhaps you want to go into public service, not for, not for the, uh, you know, just for the reason that you want to garner power, but that you want to influence things to make a difference. So power didn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily negative, but it was one of those three things. So when you talk about status, I wonder, is
1: that, is that a, is that a power thing um let me let me just jump in on that because because you know the three the three angles you took there i mean speak to motivation um you know kind of the why it matters piece when it comes to status and certainly achievement theory uh I think we all are driven to to get better at certain things. I mean, this and this lines up with self determination theory and the and the need for competence. I mean, at at, our ba- at its base level, we all want to feel like we're competent in what we do because nobody wants to feel incompetent. Uh, but certainly, but but often that's not enough. I mean, that's the threshold for for being motivated is to feel competent because if you feel inc- incompetent at any task, you feel like you're failing and and, and you lose motivation. But we also want to feel like we get better at things as well. Um, and the way you get better is in part, you know, you know, having the appropriate balance between, uh, between challenge, uh, because that's what stimulates learning and on the other end, boredom, right? So if you don't have enough challenge, you end up being bored. If you have too much challenge, you you end up being anxious. And so I think that's that. So, so achievement in that sense is, is, uh, is, is a basic drive, uh, and certainly, the markers of, uh, of achievement, things like promotions uh, would become an objective representation of what uh, your achievement looks like. Oh, my kids are home. It's going to be loud here. Um, but just to, uh, just to, just to finish the point. Uh, <laughs> you're not, you're not going to get to finish your point. I, I, I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to dry here. Um, but I think there's a difference between, you know, Wanting to have the markers of of, of achievement, like then for some people that might be come through status and, and, and job title or or whatnot, uh, and those who, those people who just want the outward markers without without being driven by the same motives. I mean, so some people, if they just care that other people think that they're important that's a different motivation than 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 like you you know even in the other power context uh you know a person who seeks power just because you know they're self-aggrandiz- self-aggrandizing or they're a narcissist uh is a very different kind of person than somebody who's seeking power to be able to create positive social change and, and isn't trying to be famous as it were for for being famous but is actually using their position to 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 make greater change and yeah. so it, it, it,
0: and I, yeah and i like that I, I really like the idea that you know the promotion that you're seeking in your career isn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily have to be outward right this isn't a show of status it could actually be just an affirmation of your own progress
1: exactly exactly so there's nothing wrong with uh if 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 the way in which you if the feedback loop that you depend on for for measuring your achievement is you know, change in title, as it were. Uh, but ultimately, the motivation for achievement is is, is something that's positive. And I, that seems to me like it's probably perfectly acceptable. That makes sense, yeah. I remember uh, speaking to a psychiatrist a bunch of years back, and, you know, and, I, and I'd read a bit of Freud, um, but I, you know, I actually read quite a bit of Freud, but but this one passage kind of escaped me. And I remember him t- telling me that, that, you know, the, the two major movers or drivers in a person's life are uh, love and career. And it's not, it's not all that surprising because you spend you know, half of your life at work. So you know, career is a, big, is a big piece of who we are and a big piece of what we do. So if things are working well there, then, it, then everything else is going well. But if they're not, you know, it can cause a lot of problems. I've heard an argument. And this is an interesting one. Um, that
0: career really doesn't matter um at the end of the day and we talked about you you know what you what people tend to say on their on their deathbed that it just it just really doesn't matter how do
1: we how should we be thinking about um career in the broader context you know it's funny um and again I'm gonna go back to my grad school days you will hear me reference them a lot because I learned a, I learned a lot during that period of my life and uh, and there's something funny that happens in you know an academic education when you're when you're going postgrad is you have a lot of idealizations about how your life's gonna unfold and, and certainly, you know, being in my late twenties, early thirties, like many people, I was at that point in time seeking out my life's passion, you know, wanting to have work uh, and, and all, all the things I was interested in be all wrapped up in the same package. And, uh, and eventually the, you know, the, the, the veil was lifted by the time I left grad school. I decided not to pursue a career in academic, uh, in, in academic circles instead, you know, get a professional life instead. But I remember I had one kind of critical insight. Um, and that was that I could be, I could enjoy anything that I was doing that I needed to have a job for sure. But putting the pressure on myself to have everything, every single need satisfied by my job or by my relationship probably wasn't a smart way to go because I was inevitably going to be disappointed and certainly had been disappointed up until that point in my life. And so I think there's something to be said for the fact that while career is a necessity uh, and certainly getting as much meaning as you can out of your career, um, it doesn't have to be everything. Yeah, it doesn't have to. And frankly, it, it probably shouldn't. There's, there's sort of this concept
0: that I've uh, heard about, uh, and I forget if, if it was called archetypes, I think. And this was the idea that you define yourself as something, right? You have some intrinsic idea about who you are. And the healthiest way of defining yourself is in multiple ways, right? That you are a whatever your career states you are, but you're also a father, you're also a son, you're also a friend to many. Uh, Maybe you're a drummer, a writer, whatever those things may be. And you have all of these different faces. We sort of have this thing in society, right? Where we always approach someone and say, well, what do you do for a living? As if that's the question that's going to tell you everything you need to know about the person, right? That that defines them. Um, but for, of course, the truth of the matter that it, you know isn't such. It, it isn't what necessarily what you do. There may be other things. There likely are other
1: things about you that are just as important. Yeah, I think uh, I'd I have to say I, I agree completely with that. Uh, like I think in uh, uh, you know people when. They hit kind of post-retirement, so they're they're living the the, the later stages of their lives. Uh, pick up completely new identities. They become volunteers in their communities. They they uh, they they invest in their families. You know, they start to explore the fact that there's these other roles that they can have in their lives. They can have meaning in all sorts of other ways as well as a result of those roles. So, so certainly, you know, while there's a habit socially, and especially for men, I think. I, I mean, I wonder if you know. I, I I wonder if it's, the, if it's felt the same way by women, but certainly uh, it seems to be amongst all the, all the guys I know, you know, your career and your social status are fairly heavily tied up with who you think you are, but also how well you think you're doing, right? So you know, these objective measures of career progression and whatnot become, become kind of milestones for, for, for determining whether or not you've been successful in life. Yeah, that's uh, we're, we're gonna need a I think a whole
0: a whole session on on that a whole chapter I think talk about career passion specifically and what you should or shouldn't be doing. Um, the the one I had a I had an anecdote that was that was interesting, sort of on the self definition thing. Um, uh, and, and this was from a professor that was describing the archetypes, and his story was this. He knew of an individual who very much defined himself by his career, and he happened to be in the army. Everything everything stemmed from him being in the army. So he had multiple versions of himself, but they were all ultimately rooted in the fact that he was in the army. And at some point, he got discharged from the army. And what ended up happening is his entire identity crumbled because it wasn't rooted in something other than that. Um, and what ended up happening, you know, it had unfortunately a tragic ending for him. Um, and, and it was just, it was just that he was, he was very narrow into the view of himself. Um, so there is danger in, in all of this. It's certainly okay to pursue, um, career and you, and we should, uh, but I, it, it sort of strikes me as there, there should be a balance there
1: i totally agree i you know i was just it, it got me thinking about just the notion of resilience like psychological resilience and you know the way i tend to think about it is i think of it always about these things kind of in a natural context and so like what makes for a resilient organism you know and you know by definition a resilient organism is one that can survive adversity and likely different kinds of adversity you know whatever the world can throw at it so you you know you you can imagine the proverbial cockroach which is always like the worst metaphor when you're talking about these things because all of a sudden people all people can think of it as a cockroach, but you know all that aside. You know uh, you, the the power of the cockroach is that it, is that it can survive under all sorts of adverse conditions, um, which means it's able to play different roles in different environments in a way that allows it to be able to survive different conditions. And so, when you think about you know how you define yourself, you know the more roles that you have in your life, uh, you know the more ways that you have for finding meaning. So if one path shuts down, you know, you move on to the next thing. So, you know, if you, uh, if you lose your job, let's say you've been working towards your career, you've invested a lot in your career and all of a sudden you're out of your job. Well, you know, use the time as you're looking for your, as you're looking for your next job to, to, to take on the role of dad a little bit more and, and invest in your family, you know, time that you haven't maybe haven't been giving to your family because you're focused on your career uh, or you find other ways of, uh, of, of engaging socially, uh, to be able to build out your relationships with friends and whatnot, because you're also a friend, you know, you're, you're a relative to siblings. And, uh, so I think, I I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind, especially when you're thinking about like just bringing this all back to midlife and, and, and the notion that we've kind of just been trying to wrap our arms around here about, you know, what is a midlife crisis? What is, what is life like at midlife? And how do you survive this phase? If it's just a phase in your life instead of being a crisis, as I'm kind of arguing, um, I mean, what are the things that are necessary for that? And certainly, uh, appreciating the fact that you're more than your career, you're more than your, 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 your any, any one relationship that, 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 you're a multitude of people, um, I think is a healthy idea. Yeah, and, and
0: uh, I mean, certainly, if I think about and careers, mean different things. Um, you know, you could be an entrepreneur, you, you could you could be working for a corporation, or you could be in the public service. There's a lot of a lot a lot of uh, variations there. But the the one that I'm most familiar with is the is the corporate side. There's, and there's just something you made me think of that that I have to talk about, which is. This this notion about progression within that particular, in the corporate environment, within that particular environment, and the the corporate world, it it it, you know now that I've been in it long enough, just just makes me laugh now. It it's essentially. uh, a, a movie. It's a stage show. We've we've all take on roles, right? We walk in through the doors of the building, and all of a sudden, we are something, and we report to someone. They are our boss. Maybe we have people working for us. We are their manager. Whatever that relationship may be, but it's completely false, right? It only exists within the confines of that building. It literally is like a movie set. We take on these roles and these personas, and we play within them. But at the end of the day. We're different people. We have, we're still individuals. We still have different aspirations and all these other parts of our life. It's not, it's not real. And I think there's a, you know, it frustrates me when there's too much placed on that kind of, you know, if you will, fictional environment. I mean, you can take examples of where, you know, someone who used to be your boss gets laid off or fired. And then, and I've seen this happen, gets brought back in as an, in, as a contractor. And now he's working for you. And all of a sudden overnight, the roles changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there has, you know, that whole environment, you have to look at it from, from a particular angle for it to be, uh, to be healthy sorry that was a that was a soapbox right no
1: now. no it's good you it, it, it got me thinking as well you know at some point in time it might be a good idea to find uh, I'll see if I can reach out to one of my friends either a social psychologist or, or, or a sociologist and just to talk about social contexts and roles and identities in those social contexts um, again that's it, it's gonna sound you know, the way I'm putting it now kind of purely academic but the fact of the matter is is that we is that You know, we live in a multitude of different social contexts and our identity seems to shift across those social contexts and to to some extent is dictated by those social contexts. So, you know, you jump into an organization, the organization's got a certain leadership structure, you know, typically hierarchical, Um, you know, teams have a particular structure as well those structures change depending on which business function you're in. So if you're in an accounting department or you're in an IDT department or you're in a marketing department, you know, the social context just shift inside of the organization just a little bit. And they have their own subcultures alongside of that. And then you given your role inside of that organization have to play a certain part in order to navigate that, that, that social context just to perform at your job, not even to, to, to advance your career or progress your career, just to, just to function in that environment. And and the reason why I think that it's worth reflecting on that a little bit is, you know, when it comes to thinking about yourself, the meaning in your life, purpose and whatnot, um, being able to see yourself, just like you pointed out, as someone who is distinct from any particular social context, that there's an identity, there's a you that kind of lives beyond, you know, the work you or the, the dad you. I mean, all of those are you in some grand sense. But uh, but, but they don't define you, and ne- neither one of them needs to define you in any absolute sense, right? So you can kind of, which I hope would be liberating. I mean, it's, to my mind, it seems a little bit liberating to think that way. Oh, definitely. Okay. Um, I mean, I think I've, I feel like
0: we've hit a bunch of good topics. One thing I, I wanted to, to move on and make sure we didn't miss is, you know, we, we talked a lot about all of the areas um, that may be impacting you. Um, but I, I do want to get to and, and and you know, make sure I ask you these questions, which is the what do you do about it questions. And um, this is probably the, uh, or at least in, for, from my view, this is the area that we'll spend the most time on, not just today, but over the series of these of these podcasts. This is the sort of area that I want to spend some time on. But at a high level, let's just talk about um, what do you do about all of this. So you're you're in um, you're in some stage of midlife. Maybe it's a crisis. Maybe it's not a crisis. Um, what? How should you be thinking about this?
1: Uh, yeah. Um, well, I'm just my my head immediately goes to thinking about all the people out there and the different ways in which you know, midlife can manifest itself and, you know, you know, when you're often, when you're trying to, to, to throw out a piece of advice, you're, you're, you're trying to think about a particular set of circumstances. And so I think there's probably some general principles. I mean, so let's just lay down, I mean, you know, what life is like at midlife, maybe it's a midlife, maybe it's a crisis, maybe it isn't. Uh, But the reality is, is that, uh, is that, you know, in a certain demographic in our age range. So what age, what, what, how we define it? Was it 40 to 50 or 59 or 58 or (laughs) there's some odd number there?
0: Yeah, it was 40 or 45 to 60 or 65.
1: Yeah. So there's some, there's, there's obviously some common and general features about people who are at that stage of their lives, right? They're at a certain stage of their careers. Typically their families are at a certain state. Um, and, uh, you know, if we think about that, 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 the national office of statistics in the uk study you know it seems to be a high stress period for many people so you know when we think about the you know what kind of advice i think we should be pitching to kind of the, the you know the, the top of the distribution there if you think of it as a as a bell curve um, and let's just assume for the sake of argument that anybody at this stage of their life has, has kids at varying ages. Uh, they don't have to have kids, but they, but, but kids will certainly make things a little bit more complicated. Um, they have career aspirations or career disappointments that are, are probably coming to fruition because at this stage of your career, I mean, uh, I remember my wife telling me she works in recruitment and saying, you know, your peak earning potential is in your forties. And so what that means for anybody who's managing a career is that, you know, your chances of getting promoted, uh, you know, after you're 50, I mean, with you know, we say that we hope that ageism doesn't exist, but it does. Um, you know, this is, this is kind of it. So the pressure, this is, the pressure is all settling in as you're thinking about life, family, career, and everything else. So, so in terms of general advice, what do you, what do you do about it? Uh, I think the, you know, what I said earlier is first and foremost is don't panic. Um, one of the things that I, we hope to be able to do in the context of this podcast is, is to be able to explore, explore kind of in a deeper level some of the particular details, like you know what is career and why does it matter? Like, should you really care about your career? Does it matter if you are, if if you don't get promoted beyond your current position right now? Um, does it matter if you if your job doesn't give you all the satisfaction that you want in life? And the answer probably is no. I mean, that's one of the things that I think uh, that we got out of you know the end of life qualitative studies there. Um, so step one, don't panic. Um, uh, and the reality is, is you know, we have a lot more time. I think today than than we've ever had before to be able to to spend time thinking about these things. And and you can you know you can bloom and blossom at various stages of your, of your life. And, and it might be also an interesting thing to explore. Just uh, if if for those people who really care about the kind of pro- career progression piece of this, uh, looking at the number of people who, you know, found successful lives later in their lives, like how old was Gene Roddenberry when he started writing Star Trek? Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. No, but there's a,
0: <laughs> just like that I jumped in there just to tell you. Yeah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a, uh, there's a lot of these, you know, uh, th- the one I keep seeing is Colonel Sanders. Right. Uh, you know, right. from KFC he was 50 in his fifties or even older. You're right. There's a there is a long list of these. I, so I, I like what you're saying. I like what you know. You said don't panic. I think that's right. Uh, th- there's no hurry here. Um, yeah. th- the hurry is something that we're applying to it. We do have lots of time. Uh, I think that's that. I think that's a really uh, really important one. Um, I think there was something else in there that, that you said, and I want to paraphrase. But uh, this is what I heard. Maybe I'm just inserting. Tell me if this if this resonates. But to me, there's a little bit of give yourself permission, like just, just go easy on yourself. Cause obviously you know, as with anything else, we are our worst enemies um, most of the time. So the, the sort of the don't panic and there's, there's no hurry. I think that also requires you to give yourself permission and time to say, I'm just going to think about this. I'm just going to analyze this. I'm, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to make rational decisions here.
1: Yeah. And, and I think, you know, doing things that can, can help support you in that way. And I I think as we, you know, explore these ideas in the future podcast, we'll have, I think we'll have probably more tactical advice and we'll get some experts in to be, to help inform this. But, but, you know, there are some other general things like, you know, you know, we're in a, we're a a social media culture now. And, you know, if you, if you spend any amount of time on social media, whether it's in LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or what have you, you know, you're constantly witness to the spectacle of other people's lives. And, and if you don't have, uh, if you don't approach that, I guess in my view rationally and, and see this as people putting their best foot forward. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, I remember back in the day, uh, uh, when, when I first started trying on lighting online dating <laughs> Uh, And I think everybody goes through this experience where you innocently show up on, on, on a dating site, you put your profile picture up there, you give some, you know, clever description of yourself and then you start doing it. Right. And, uh, and, and then you encounter people in, in the flesh, uh, you know, if you end up going that far with the, with the online dating and inevitably there's, there's always some disappointment, uh, because, uh, and it's not, you know, it's not unfair, but, um, people want to put their best foot forward, you know, so they find the best photograph of themselves. They find the best description of themselves, you know, and even in the initial conversations, they're looking to present themselves in a certain way. And, uh, and the lesson from all that is that, you know, what you see on social media typically isn't the reality, right? It's a, it's a veneer. It's, it's a, it's, you know, the person's best foot forward um, that doesn't tell you how their lives are really, really going. And I think, you know, if anybody wants to just reach into their own personal experience, we all, you know, now especially at this stage of our lives uh have at least one or two good anecdotes of couples that we knew who all of a sudden uh are in the midst of uh separation or or ultimately divorce and you never saw it coming right and so so you know i think the lesson here is is you know not just is yes, be gentle to yourself, but but one of the ways to do that is to you know take other what's happening with other people, their lives and their careers with a grain of salt. I mean their lives don't need to be your life life, and you don't know everything that's going on. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. You don't know the full
0: story. Um, the social media one is is amazing because, uh, I mean, we've all gone through this. You will always find someone who you'll perceive as better in anything you want. Um, you may think you're attractive. You'll find someone more attractive. You may think you're in shape. You'll find someone who's more in shape. You may think you're good at Fortnite. Well, you're not. <laughs> um, there's, there's always someone better. So, and, and that's one of the things that social media has, has done for us, but you know, it, that's, that can be a disheartening exercise. So, you know, consume social media with, uh, with caution. The, the other part that's buried in there is this whole notion of comparison, which you alluded to, right? Which you don't, you know, you don't know the whole story, um, this is a big one. Um, big one for me. And and I think uh um but this is where, for example, my coach spent a lot of time with me is, is on this on on this comparison sign because um it's never healthy. It is never a good thing to do. And and ultimately it's not it's not apples to apples, right? It's oh. it's you can't know or you can't recreate the circumstances or the opportunities that someone else had. Um when, when we get into talking about passion or career, I have a whole rant here, uh, about the role of luck in all of this. Um, you know, just to foreshadow some of that, you know, if you think about Malcolm Gladwell's book called outliers, it it talks about all of this, right? Like there, you know, Bill Gates had access to computers that no one else had access to at a, at a day where these things were premium and expensive. Like these are, these are things that just, you know, if he, if Bill Gates was born in Kansas city, exactly at the same time, it, it wouldn't have happened the way that it did. Um, so these are, uh, th- these are things that you should, you should never look at and,
1: uh, and, and compare. Yeah, 100%. Um, You know another another thing that came to mind. I I was reading this article today, uh, and the title of the article was "Survival of the Friendliest: How Our Close Relationships Help Us Thrive." Uh, And it was documenting a a, a new book um, uh, called "Friendship: The Evolution, Uh, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond," which talks about friendships Uh, and. Uh, one of the interesting things is, the, is, you know, there's some really good research now showing that that your social connections to other people can, infu- can influence your health, like right down to the cellular level, uh, you know, immune function and how your cardiovascular system functions. And so, you know, again, I'm, you know, we're, we're kind of focusing on physical health here you know, in terms of the, uh, the effects, but, but what's interesting, this is just a social relationship that you have with other people. Just having these bonds is a critical part of, of, of feeling well. Uh, and, and we can actually measure the impact of, of positive social relationships on your physiology, which is absolutely, you know, astounding as far as I'm concerned. And so, so I think investing in friendships is, uh, and, and, and building out your social network, um, which is really hard to do, I think is also something that, that that's worth considering for people as well. And I mean, in the article, they talk about the fact that, you know, people typically only have four really close relationships that they're able to maintain and anything beyond six is really difficult to maintain, at least at that, you know, with, with a certain degree of close, we all have lots of acquaintances. I mean, I think I've got like 256 friends on Facebook, so I'm probably doing really well, I think, or maybe not if you've got like 800 friends. Um, but but those aren't close relationships those are just people who you're bouncing around and kind of running into and on online and so so i think thinking about how you're managing your relationships which have probably at this stage of your life i mean some of them have been neglected um yeah i know in the first few years of our life with young kids, you know, a lot of our social relationships shifted and we ended up hanging out with people who happen to have kids the same age, because it was just easier to have the kids together and just hang out with parents, which was, which was an awesome way to, to, to make new friends. And we've built some really good relationships that way. Um, and if those relationships are, are the main relationships in your life, then that's great. But consider investing in, 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 you know, strong relationships that you had that just, uh, that, that, that haven't gotten as much attention as the, as, as they could have. That's right. And and I think
0: I, I think you're you're dead on. Um and, and there's something about that network and those relationships. There's a characteristic in there I think that's important, which is the idea that you have someone that you can either a confide in um or put another way, someone you can be vulnerable with, right? There's all you know, we have these thoughts, all of us, um, that we don't dare disclose to anyone. Right. I can't, you know, I can't tell anyone how I'm really thinking, mm-hmm. you know, I can't, I can't tell people that, you know, when I pull up to a stoplight and I look over to the right, what I'm really thinking is look at that guy. How did he afford that car? Why did he have a better car than me? Like these are, these feel like things I shouldn't be talking about. And there's a whole list of this kind of stuff. So you, you need the kind of person that you can be completely honest with. Um, and we, we will actually talk about this separately, which is, you know, just emotions in general. And, you know, typically how men bottle these things up and never let them out, but we should, we should let all of these things out. So, um, you, you need that person and, you know, to the extent possible, um, you know, we're, we're also here for, for that purpose. If anyone wants to reach out, happy to, uh, happy to chat or walk you through our experiences.
1: Yeah. And I need more friends on Facebook anyways. So, what's what's Facebook Sorry, that's, uh, that's, that's, I mean Instagram or it's like, right right right, right, I mean your social status is uh you know needs to be judged by the number of followers that you have right i mean i, I yeah I'd say that in jest obviously i mean it's but it's you know it's kind of a funny comment on on just the social media world we live in and and the contrast between time spent on social media and and seeing the absurd part of life, which is you know everybody's veneer. Versus, you know, the deeper parts of life, which is just as you describe it. I mean, having having good close relationships where you can share your thoughts and feelings, and I mean, and that doesn't have to be explicit. I mean, it doesn't have to be a face to face conversation where you're sitting down and and uh, and and opening your heart up. It can be. I mean, that's one way to do it. But sometimes it can just be being around another person. You know, like you know, going on a camping trip with your with. I mean, we all know this. Going on a camping trip and getting it with your buddies. Um, sometimes just. Being in somebody else's physical presence is enough, right? You can and you can feel the difference. You know, you go come back from a weekend like that, and just bonding with uh, bonding with your friends is, is rejuvenating.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, there's one more gonna I'm gonna add in here, um, which is about being wiser, and and I've and I've noticed this um, in my own experiences, which is, you know, we. Uh, In many cases, when you, when you learn things, you don't necessarily learn them in such a way that you know, you've learned them, right? You just, you just, I just, I just know it's kind of like the matrix. You wake up, you're like, I know karate. Um, (laughs) it's, it's exactly like that. Like it's, oh, it was a Kung Fu. Damn it. Missed up the reference. Um, (laughs) But you just, you just know things. And so one of the things we need to do is we need to play to those strengths. And again, you may not be fully aware of this until you see, you know, someone younger, um, attempting to do something where you have expertise and you, and you know, your first question is, well, why would you do it like that? As if it's obvious, um, you know, the, the old curse of knowledge, because you know it, but you don't know, you know it. Um, this is an important thing to remember is we're at an age now where we've accumulated all of this knowledge. Um, and it doesn't, you don't have to stay, and I don't mean career knowledge, right? Where you've stayed in a career your whole life and now you're an expert in an area. It may be that it's just life experience, right? Mm -hmm. Um, when you're driving down the road and you see, you see that one car pulling out on your right and your foot just moves over the brake. Why, why, why did, why did you, why did you do that? What is it about that car that made you do that? And you, if you break it down, you could understand why you did it, but it becomes habit, it becomes um, almost automatic, and there's a whole bunch of things like that. So I think we're in a good place because we actually are wise, whether we like it or not.
1: Yeah, and I think maybe uh, exploring some of those intuitive skills that we have, I mean, I, the first thing that came to mind for me was, and one that's really important now in my life, um, is pr- prioritization. Uh You know, as life gets busier and you can't do everything that you want to do, you know, how do you establish priorities or, 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 or let's say it's not just a busyness thing. You know, let's say you're at this point in your life and you're looking out on the rest of your life and, you know, you're feeling dread and, and trying to figure out what you're going to do with the time that you've got left. I mean, if you know, for some people that might be their experience of midlife, um, you know you can't do everything and so so settling on some things and at this and, and up until this point i think very few of us have had a lot of uh, you know we had a lot of choice probably in our 20s uh, depending on when uh, whether or not you had kids and and when you had kids you know from that point on once you have kids you're you're kind of on a, you know you're you're kind of on a set of rails through a whole bunch of things which you don't have a lot of control over because you've got to take care of your kids you've got to raise them you've got to expose them to the world you're doing sporting activities or other activities with the kids um and now uh, you know as you're starting to, as the kids are starting to get older you know you have more time to yourself and so so you can kind of look out in your life and say well hey what do i want to do with that so how do i set goals i mean if you hadn't been setting goals up to this point you know now this may be you know you you may think this is the first time you've looked at goal setting, but you've been setting goals probably for the last, you know, 20 years of your life. You know, you just need to realize that a lot of those skills, as you pointed out, are already there. They're latent in some sense, but, you know, you know, the skills that you have at work around prioritization and planning, you know, those things can be fruitful when they're, when applied to looking at your life in you kind of know more broader and more general terms as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So
0: if I recap, no, step one, don't panic. You have time. Um, step two or three, um, build yourself uh, a network of folks, um, I think is what, uh, is what we had said. Um, don't compare. I'm talking okay. about social media and some other things, you know, comparison may not, uh, is, is, is probably uh, hurtful. Um, to your point, uh, start thinking about, um, prioritizing things in your life, things that are really worthwhile and, uh, and think about some, some next step goals. And I think, you know, that's, you know, we're going to talk about that, uh, in, in the coming podcasts, you know, and lastly, and, and, you know, take to heart that you are actually a wiser and smarter individual. Um, and all of that can, can certainly play to your strengths. I miss anything in there.
1: No, I think that's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. I mean, right I think uh, you know as we, you know, as we get into topics and explore this further, I think I think we'll be able to refine that a little bit. But as, as a as a first cut and our first shot at at again at, like trying to, to wrestle some of this really complicated stuff to the ground, you know, I think it's a good place to start. All right. So, um, lots of uh, lots of other things
0: to talk about. Um, we certainly. We'll have a session about career and finding your passion. I think that one's going to be uh, really important. We we will have to talk about uh, emotions. Um, I want to talk about uh, personality. There's a there's a lot on on that topic. Where I've spent some time there, and you know, we don't all experience the world the same way. So it's important to to understand that those things are different. And then, you know, we jeez, oh, there's a, I have a laundry list of stuff to to talk about, and in in part it'll be you know based on what you or listeners feel like uh, is, is most important. But um, you know th- everything from health and fitness, diet, um, illness, sex, dating, vanity topics, uh, fatherhood, all of those types of things. So lots and uh, and lots to cover. So do let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, and what topics you'd like covered next. And we'll make sure we, uh, we prioritize and, and have uh, covered all the areas you'd like to hear about. Uh, you can find us. Probably the best way to reach us is through the Contact Us form on our website, which is at themamclub.com. We're also on Instagram at MAM underscore club and on Twitter at Real MAM Club. Thank you all very much. Manly hugs T all Johnson.